Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you'd like to support the ministries of Rancho Church as we advance the cause of Christ together, you may do so at rancho.tv slash giving. Enjoy. We are celebrating a new series called The Promise. And what we'll see today, actually in a few minutes, is that that promise is for every family on earth. The scripture, Old Testament and New, is talking about every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So for us to have a sensitivity around that and a warm and welcoming heart is so critical to that. So we're going to start a series right now called The Promise. And as we do, um, it's important to know the value of promises in our society, in our culture, in every relationship. The value of promises cannot be overstated. I'll give you just a couple of examples. When you're very young, uh, you value probably more than anything else the promises of your parents. If your parents say, hey, I'm going to pick you up after school. Hey, we're going to go to the beach this weekend. Those promises mean everything to a child, right? They're clinging on. I get to see my parents. They're going to pick me up. I'm going to feel safe. I'm going to feel cared for, right? Uh, What is marriage? Marriage is not a piece of paper. Marriage is not a ring. Marriage is a promise. It's all it is. Promise that we made 26 years ago and looked at each other at that wedding altar, made a promise, and that's lasting for life. Banking is a promise. I think I burst some bubbles last service. You give your hard-earned money to a bank, five minutes later, they lent it to your neighbor to buy a car. That's just how it works, right? They're not keeping your money in a, in a vault. There's no cash in vaults anymore, right? It's a trusting relationship. It's a promise. I'm taking your money. I'm going to give it to them. We're going to make some interest. If you need your money back, I promise it's going to be there. That's the whole banking system. Credit is a promise. You'll be able to borrow when you need. Your 401k is a promise. Your retirement is nothing but a promise. Your retirement is not keeping cash in a, in a box for you to get when you're retired. It's, it's a computer program that says what small percentage of what companies and what bonds you own. It's a promise. That's all. Social security is a promise. There ain't no money there. But it's a promise that when you need it, the younger generations will give it to you. Insurance is a promise. Leases and mortgages are promises. Every signature is a promise. From a check to a contract, employment is a promise. Go through HR, sign a deal, get to work. Yeah, trust us, we'll pay you. Global economy, is global peace and prosperity is a promise. Every trade deal is a promise. Treaties are promises. Borders are promises. Peace accords are promises. Ceasefires are promises. Alliances are promises. The world spins on promises. I'll take um, one silly sort of example of how promises are so intertwined in our lives. Uh, Our dog was recently fixed, so had the cone of shame for a few days, but then wanted the cone of shame to be gone, so my wife was looking for a onesie, a dog onesie. So we got on Amazon. There's a dog onesie, so they don't don't scratch. We see a picture. It's a third-party merchant. Third-party merchant promises Amazon that they have this item. Amazon then promises us we have that item. All the reviewers promise that they're honest. We use a credit card to buy that. That's a promise that our bank is going to pay Amazon, and it's a promise from us that we're going to pay that back. Amazon promises it will be shipped. Why? Because the merchant promises Amazon it will be shipped. It comes with a warranty, which is a promise of quality. It also comes with a return policy that promises if we don't like it, we can return it. I mean, that's a click of an Amazon button, and there's a dozen promises that just fall out there, right? And of course, here's my dog with the onesie, looking pretty rough. Just had, you know, surgery not too long ago. Somebody after last service says, uh, I have a groomer you can go to. It's like, <laughs> stop your judging, move on. <laughs> promises are everywhere. But a promise is only as good as the one giving the promise. Fair? If your mom or dad is not showing up when, they're, when they say they're going to show up and they're not taking you to the places they say they're going to take you, the whole relationship falls apart, right? 
because promises are only as good as the one making the promises. If your spouse is cheating on you, that promise at marriage is only as good as the one who made it. If you have a relative who is you know, an addict and they're ruining their lives and maybe ruining the lives of others and they say for the 12th time, this time I promise I'm gonna go and get some help, it kind of crumbles because a promise is only as good as the one giving the promise. So we're gonna study the promises of God. We're gonna study the promises of God that are leading up to the life and ministry of Jesus, leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We're gonna go over the Old Testament promises that point to Jesus as we prepare for Easter. And since promises are only as good as the one making the promise, how good are the promises of God? Yeah, pretty good? All right, pretty good. Pretty good? Yeah, all right, pretty good. All right, it's church. We better get that one. All right. But there are some people who pause because sometimes we don't feel as though the promises of God are working real well, especially when life sort of hits you sideways, when you get T-boned by life. I mean, just out of the blue, you're suffering with a medical diagnosis or a family member is suffering with a medical diagnosis or you have a financial situation, you can't get a job or you lose a loved one. When you're suffering, sometimes we feel as though the promises of God are not being kept. And there's, there's two reasons for that. One of them is that I think in church there's a lot of promises made in the name of God that God never, that God never made. So we might grow up in church environments having this urging, you know, be faithful. Be faithful to church. Be faithful to the Bible. Be faithful to prayer. Be faithful to obedience. If you're faithful to all these things, then your life will be blessed. And we hear that all the time in religious circles. You do these things and God will bless your life. Well, you try to do these things pretty well and then your life still gets hammered with something very serious and you're suffering or people you love are suffering and the religious formula didn't work so people can, can really have this sense that maybe God didn't fulfill the promise when in fact it was a promise your youth pastor made to you when you were young but really wasn't speaking for God. Does that make sense? So much pain happens and, and I'm telling you, I experienced this probably more than any other dynamic leading a church is people reach out and they're struggling, they're suffering, and they're saying, where is God? Is this whole God thing even real? And the reason why they're feeling that is because they were raised in a religious environment where the formulas fall short. God didn't make the promise that good things will happen to good people. He never promised that. In fact, I can point to probably thousands of scriptures where God says the exact opposite. It's a broken world and sometimes bad things happen to good people. In fact, David, one of the heroes of the Old Testament ran into this buzzsaw himself. Here is this young, faithful man, right? He took down Goliath. We know that story. And, uh, and so the whole nation was kind of looking to David. Uh, and, and the king was jealous of David, so the king wanted David dead. So he's hunting David down like an animal, right? And so in some cave, David writes this song, and he says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? He wasn't feeling that God was close doesn't say he was doubting a promise, but he wasn't feeling as though God was close because he was suffering. It's a very normal, natural human feeling. Jesus felt that on the cross. This is exactly what he quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He was feeling those very natural, normal human emotions. So sometimes the promises that we thought God made, he never made, just our pastors made them for him, which isn't good, or just we run into some difficulty in life and it just hurts. And it doesn't feel as though God is close. But despite the pain that life sometimes brings and despite the feelings of being abandoned by God, even though we're not, and despite the confusion that comes when bad things happen to good people, God's promises are sure and they never, ever fail. 
We just need to know what those promises are. Not kind of the religious system of promises, but truly what the promises are and what they mean for us. So as we prepare for Easter, we're going to look at the promises that pointed to Easter, that pointed to Jesus, and we're going to do that through the Old Testament. Now, every time we go through the Old Testament, we did this with Esther not too long ago, I'm going to give you a little primer on how to read the Old Testament because I believe firmly to the core of my being one of the failures of the Western church is not knowing how to read the Old Testament. I mean, I roll my eyes so often at how the Old Testament is treated in church circles, and we've got to know how to read the Old Testament. We are 21st century Westerners. The Old Testament is about at least, it's at least 2,500 years old, going back to concepts that are 4,000 years old from the ancient Near East. We have to read the Old Testament through the lens of an ancient Near Easter, Near Easterner, and it is, it is so difficult, so difficult. I do not claim to know how to do it in its entirety, but I'm spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to unlock the truths of the Old Testament. So as we go to Old Testament promises, we need a primer on how to read the Old Testament. Um, page one. This is a good page of the Old Testament. It's a really good page. Chapter one. It's a poem. Masterfully exalting God as the one creator who personally and carefully crafts the heavens and the earth with humankind as the crown of God's creation, man and woman, equally created in the image of God. It's a wonderful, wonderful page. That is page one. And then you go to page two, chapter two. That's also really cool. Chapter two is a beautiful image of the relationship God intended to enjoy with humankind. It's the imagery of God walking with humans in the garden, walking together with peace and provision, enjoying God and God enjoying us. It's a beautiful picture. So page one and page two of the Old Testament is really a great experience. Then you go to page three. Now I'm going to use a theological term. This is not a cuss word. It's a theological term. Page three, it all goes to hell. All goes to hell. Chapter three, humankind chooses pride. This is the, the, the sort of promise and lie that you can become like God. And ooh, I want to become like God. That's Genesis chapter three. Chapter four, humankind chooses violence. This is Cain and Abel, and it gets worse from there. Genesis chapter six through nine talks about the world leading up to Noah, that humankind chooses, and this is a quote, corruption, and using and abusing other people for our own gain. Genesis chapter 11, humankind chooses power. This is Babel. This is humankind rallying together, and we can build a tower for ourselves, our own lifestyle, our own prosperity, right? Our own power. Genesis 1 through 11 is masterful. The first two chapters talks about God's heart. Chapter 3 through 11 talks about man's heart. And it is man's heart that ruined God's good creation. And it answers the question, why is there evil in this world? It answers the question as far as I'm concerned. A lot of times when we see evil, and especially if we see things on the news that are horrifically unjust and just stomach churning, we ask ourselves the very normal question, if God is good, why is there evil? Genesis 1 through 11 answers that question. Chapters 1 and 2, God is good. His creation is good. His heart is for all of his creation, specifically to connect with humankind made in his image. That's God's heart. But because we're made in God's image, we choose destruction. We choose violence. We choose selfishness. We choose our own power and pride and corruption. We have ruined God's good creation. We have done it. It's not God's problem. It is ours. And so now what we have is the rest of the Old Testament. One nation in particular is trying to figure out this whole dynamic. One nation in particular, the, the Hebrew nation, is trying to figure out who God is. They're trying to figure out what God wants. Because if they can figure out who he is and figure out what he wants, they can benefit from it. 
So the rest of the Old Testament, which is, you know, 98% of the rest of the Old Testament, is, written, is the written story of how one nation, Israel, attempts to understand who God is and what he wants from them so they can earn prosperity and military success. That's the Old Testament. I got a few eyebrows raised and a few comments. No emails yet, but they're coming. So Israel just wanted prosperity and military success in the Old Testament? Yep. That is exactly what they want. That's exactly what every nation at the time wanted. It's kind of what every nation on earth wants sort of now, right? And so the Old Testament is the detailing, the written version of that story. Who is God? We've got to figure this out. We're suffering. We're struggling. We want land. We want prosperity, right? We want peace. We want our borders to expand. We want military success. How are we going to get that? Who is God? What does he want? Laws, rules, regulations, uh, temples, priests, the whole thing. We're trying to figure it out. Trying to give God what he wants. Sometimes they succeed. Most of the time they fail. And in short, and this might sound kind of rough and a little bit crude, but none of it worked. None of it worked. Israel begins in Genesis with 400 years of slavery and God is silent. The Old Testament ends with 400 years of oppression and God is silent. It didn't work. But in the midst of all this suffering and chaos and trying to figure out who God is, trying to figure out what he wants so we can earn prosperity and military success, as I can just kind of imagine God looking at that whole scene, shaking his head a lot and, and just seeing humankind made in God's image do a lot of terrible things to each other and even in the region and politically and militarily, in the midst of all that Old Testament chaos, God inserts these little gems, these little promises, and he says, we're just all going to be patient here, and one day something new is going to come. One day there's going to be freedom. One day there's going to be forgiveness. One day love is going to rule. One day there will be a kingdom that will last forever. And so the promises of God are not about our personal prosperity and success. The promises of God are about an unbreakable relationship of unconditional forgiving love and the peace that brings to people, the peace that brings to families, and that peace that will bring to the world. So let's start with the, the first promise that God made to one person in particular, Abram. God chose Abram. He is a nomad, a clansman, the leader of a clan. God chose him just because. Book of Romans is very clear. He didn't choose Abram because he was particularly holy or good or worshiped the right gods. He worshiped idols. He did all that the other people did in Mesopotamia. But God says, we've got to start somewhere, almost like a kind of a throwing a dart on the globe, lands on Abram. Abram, we're going to start with you, right? And he gave Abram a promise. This is the promise of the Bible. It's the foundational promise of the entire Bible, the foundational promise of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's the foundational promise of Easter and, and this new kingdom post-Easter that we get to live in right now. Here's the promise, Genesis 12, one through three. The Lord said to Abram, go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. You'll be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And here it is. All families on earth will be blessed through you. That's God's heart. Now this is Genesis 12, right? This is after all the chaos that we started. This is after all the chaos. God says, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not done with you. I'm like a father to you. I'm like a father to you. 
And, and some people here might know the experience of, of having a, a pretty good household. You know, it may not be perfect, but a pretty good household. And one uh, son or daughter turns their back on their family, destroys their life, destroys the lives of others, right? It's, it's that kind of a feel in the Old Testament, that humankind just turned our backs on God. God's a good God, but we just chose to turn our backs because we have the power to do so. And we're wrecking our lives, and we're wrecking God's good earth, and we're wrecking the lives of others, nations against nations, wars, injustices. We have turned our back on God, but God never turns his back on us, never. That's the story of the Old Testament. Those are the promises of the Old Testament. And we see that start in Genesis chapter 12. With all the chaos that we created, God is not going to leave us. And God says, one day, every family on earth will be blessed. And God's just looking at how we have cursed each other and says, one day, every family on earth will be blessed. That's the key promise. Again, to understand our Old Testament, we have to know a little bit of the history and, and, and the context around the Old Testament. So let's go through a couple of slides, a few maps. Uh, this is the Mediterranean Sea, Egypt to the lower left there. And we have um, modern-day Saudi Arabia in the middle and to the right, we have Iran, Iraq. And so Abram starts in the Mesopotamian Valley, which is right between Iran and Iraq. That's 1900 BC. God says, you've got to move over here. You've got to move to the land of Canaan. Doesn't explain why, just go. Abram says, okay, that's the voice of God. I'm going. And so moves to the land of Canaan. Uh, this is where the, the tribe of, of Abram really grows with his children and grandchildren. There's a famine in the area. They go down to Egypt to get relief from the famine, right? Egypt takes them into slavery. So from 1850 to 1450 BC, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God calls Moses, you know, the burning bush deal, let my people go. And then there's this exodus 40 years through the wilderness. So from 1450 to 930, they're now taking back the land of Canaan. And this is where the Old Testament gets rough, brutal. The entire region is a culture of war, barbarianism, tribalism, bloodshed that you wouldn't believe. And, and that's detailed in the Old Testament. They establish a unified kingdom until 930. At 930 BC, the kingdom splits into two. Ten tribes go to the north in Israel. Two tribes uh, are in the south in the region of uh, Jerusalem and, uh, and Judea. So that's the basic concept leading up to 722 BC. Now, we're about to go to another promise through Isaiah. And in order to understand that promise, we have to understand what happens around 722 to 500 BC. And someone far better than I will explain this to you on the video. Take a look. A century ago, a conflict arose which would quickly become one of the most complex and controversial in the world. A conflict between two very different people for the same territory. To understand its origins, let's retrace the history of the Jewish people on a map. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict will be explained in a following video. The story begins in 750 BC when the Near East was divided into many small kingdoms and city-states. They were wedged between the Assyrian Empire to the north and Egypt in the south. Among them was the Kingdom of Israel, whose people worshipped several gods, including Yahweh. In 722 BC, the capital Samaria fell to the Assyrian Empire. Part of the population then fled to the Kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem but they would be followed by the Assyrian army as they continue their expansion towards the south. The region then remains under their control for a century until the fall of Nineveh to the Babylonians. Egypt and Babylon would then compete for territories of the old empire, 
but the Babylonians quickly take over and project their power in the region. Jerusalem resists this new rule and rebels. The Babylonian army then returns to besiege and destroy the city. Much of the population is then moved to the capital. In 539 BC, the Alchemenid Persian Empire takes over Babylon. The new king authorizes a free passage for Judeans, prompting many to return to Jerusalem. They would then rebuild the city and organize the foundations of Jewish culture by building the Temple of Solomon and writing the Torah. In 334 BC, the ambitious young Macedonian king Alexander the Great set out with his army to conquer the known world. In just over 10 years, he rakes up a huge territory and builds many cities. But exhausted by conquest, he died at age 32 in Babylon without an heir of governing age. The empire was then divided by his generals into various Hellenic kingdoms. Judea came under the control of the Ptolemaic dynasty. A Jewish community settles in the new city of Alexandria and the Torah is translated into Greek. Following a war against the Seleucid dynasty, Hellenic and Jewish culture develop friction to the point that one of the altars of the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem was dedicated to the worship of Zeus. A traditionalist anti-Hellenic Jewish militia is organized and takes control of Jerusalem in 164 BC. The temple is restored and the kingdom of Judea becomes independent. A century later, the region was conquered by the Roman army. The Judeans would organize two major revolts against the new regime, which were violently crushed. The first revolt in 66 provoked the siege of Jerusalem, followed by the destruction of its temple. The only wall of the enclosure that survived would become known as the Wailing Wall. During the Second Revolt, the city was razed and a great part of the population slaughtered. This time, the Jews were forbidden a safe passage to Judea. Many migrate to Galilee and across the empire. Towards the end of the Roman Empire, Christianity was the dominant religion and Jerusalem a place of pilgrimage. The largely well-to-do Jewish community in the Mediterranean basin began to be persecuted especially in the Visigoth and Byzantine empires. In the 7th century, following the birth of Islam, begins an Arab conquest. In some cases, Jews support the conquest in the hope of better conditions. They are tolerated by the Arabs and only polytheistic peoples are forcibly converted. In Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock is built, making the city holy to the three monotheistic religions. The Arabs arrive in the Iberian Peninsula, which they call Al-Andalus. Here, 5% of the population is Jewish, ushering in a golden age of culture. Meanwhile in Europe, Jews are not only tolerated as people who witnessed times before Christ, but also as the sole traders between Catholics and Muslims. This allows Jews to gradually establish themselves in all of Western Europe. In the 11th century, the Seljuk Turks, a Central Asian people, began their expansion and reached Jerusalem. They persecute Christians and forbid pilgrimages to the city. In response, Christians in Europe organized crusades, military and religious expeditions to the holy city. Along the way, they massacred Jewish communities who they now consider a DSI people who killed Jesus Christ. 
In 1347, Genoese merchant boats from Caffa helped spread the Black Death. In five years, the disease wreaks havoc in Europe, killing almost half its population. A rumor spreads accusing Jews of poisoning wells, resulting in their persecution mainly along the Rhine and Rhone region and their eventual expulsion. In Spain, the Reconquista ends. The Catholic kings serve an ultimatum to the Jews to either convert or leave. The majority who choose to leave settle along the Mediterranean coast, mainly in the Ottoman Empire, where they are welcomed. The Poland-Lithuania Commonwealth becomes a haven for Jews from Western Europe due to favorable migration policies. In the 17th century, the region hosts more than 300,000 or about half of the Jews in the world. But everything changed in 1648 with the revolt of the Cossacks' Ukrainian presence against the nobility and the Jews. They accused the Jews of having a privileged relationship with those in power. More than 100,000 Jewish people are killed or flee the region. This episode would weaken the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth besieged on all sides by neighboring powers. In 150 years, the regime falls and its territory is carved up. The Jewish community is divided and 900,000 of them find themselves in the Russian Empire where they are not welcome. They quickly become the targets of attacks called pogroms, a Russian term meaning devastation. Given the lack of response from authorities, these attacks become more frequent and deadly. The Jews then emigrate to the United States and Western Europe, which in the meantime has improved their living conditions. It is in this context that the first Zionist Congress is held in Basel in 1897, contemplating the founding of a new homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. But the Ottoman Empire is fiercely opposed to the project. A few years later, the First World War breaks out. The Ottoman Empire fought alongside Germany. When the Allies were in trouble and desperately sought further support, the then British Minister of Foreign Affairs, Arthur Balfour, wrote an open letter promising a Jewish homeland in Palestine in return for Jewish support. In parallel, they support the Arab rebellion against the Ottoman Empire by promising them independence in the liberated territories. At the end of the war, the map of the Middle East was redrawn and divided up between the European powers. Palestine comes under the British mandate, marking the beginning of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. All right, so there's three kingdoms we have to understand if we're going to understand God's promises through Isaiah. The first is the Assyrian Empire. In 722, the Assyrians had sacked uh, Israel, the ten tribes in the north, scattered them. They were never reformulated. Ten tribes of Israel just wiped out, scattered all over the, all over the world. Then you have the Babylonian Empire. Uh, they take over the southern tribe of uh, the southern two tribes and take over Judah, including Jerusalem. This is the low point of Israel's history, the absolute low point. Keep in mind, they're clinging on to this promise that God is going to make the nation of Israel great, and they're looking at their time now under Babylonian rule. There's nothing great about it. Ten tribes are extinct. The two tribes are then taken to uh, Babylon in captivity. This is where you have Daniel and then Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And, uh, and they've got no land. They've got no king. They've got no freedom. Uh, they are enslaved, essentially, in, in Babylon and very little hope for the future. But there's this one possible savior that Isaiah writes about. There's this one glimmer of hope, and that is 
King Cyrus. King Cyrus of the Persian Empire could be their savior. King Cyrus is knocking on the door of Babylon. He's got this incredible army, and they just blew into the, um, uh, to the empire of Babylon and wiped it out. And they actually ended up having a great relationship with the Jews. And so the, the Persians gave them their city back, Jerusalem. They helped fund their temple, helped fund the rebuilding of their city, and gave them a certain sense of autonomy, still under their rule, but a certain sense of autonomy. So as we, we read Isaiah, Isaiah is looking forward to a savior, small s savior, and his name is Cyrus the Great. So here's how to read Isaiah chapter 9 from one perspective. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The low point of Israel's history, Babylon is in. They're brutal against them. They're enslaved. They're in captivity. They have almost no hope of a future that looks anything like the promise God gave to Abram. God says that will not go on forever. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Isaiah is saying, hope is coming. For you will break the yoke of slavery. This Savior will break the yoke of slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod. The boots of the warrior and uniforms, bloodstained by war, will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. So there will be a, a, this peace that will come to Jerusalem. Who is that Savior? That Savior is Cyrus the Great, king of Persia. But then there's this other piece of this new kingdom. There's this other, other aspect of this new kingdom that will save Israel that doesn't sound quite like the Persian Empire. Isaiah 9, 6. Tell me if this sounds familiar. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That sound familiar? When do we read that verse? At Christmas. Now, why do we read that at Christmas? Because it's understood that this concept of a kingdom that is everlasting does not describe the Persian king, does not describe the Persian kingdom. Every king's reign comes to an end. Every empire comes to an end. And yet God's promises say there is a kingdom coming that will have no end. Verse 7, his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. So ancestor David cannot mean King Cyrus but somebody to come from the line of Israel. And that rule will be forever. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. So how can there possibly be a promise fulfilled of an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will never end? Well, it can't be an earthly kingdom. It can't have an earthly king. It can't have earthly armies. It can't have earthly land, earthly money. It's gotta be entirely different. So who does that promise apply to? Well, 500 years later, here comes Jesus. He is no earthly king. In fact, he's a peasant. He doesn't have a dime. He's living off of donations. He has no land, no territory, no army, nothing. But he's preaching about a new kingdom, a new kingdom that serves other people, particularly the poor and the lost and the broken and the lonely and the outcast and the sinner. He's serving them. And he's speaking about this whole new kingdom, and it's unlike any other kingdom that anybody has even dreamed about. Certainly, it wasn't seen in the Old Testament. There's these promises of a new kingdom, but everybody thought that meant more war, more land, more money, more authority. Jesus lived his life in just the exact opposite way. Humility and selflessness, living for the benefit of others, right? 
It's a new kind of kingdom. But because Jesus was talking about a kingdom, it was such a threat to the religious and political rulers that they arrested him, tortured him, and tossed him before Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, the oppressing empire, the latest oppressing empire over Israel. And Pontius Pilate looks at Jesus and says, you're talking a lot about a kingdom. I need to know what you're talking about. And Jesus answers Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is not of this world. That kind of answers everything. It answered, answers Pilate's question wonderfully. Pilate says, okay, you're free to go. I mean, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to say, hey, listen, it's not an earthly kingdom. Therefore, I don't care. He washed his hands and says, as far as I'm concerned, I find no guilt in him. But the, the religious leaders would not put up with Jesus being set free. They demanded he be crucified because this idea of kingdom is not just about governments. It's about religion. And when Jesus talked about a different kind of kingdom that wasn't of this world, that was about love and service and grace and compassion, not amassing wealth, but giving it away, living for the benefit of others and not the elite. Oh my gosh, they had a conniption fit and they wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. His kingdom was not of this world. And because it's not of this world, it's a kingdom that can last forever. We're going to close out with a five-minute video by the uh, Bible Project folks. And uh, I'm telling you, if you're not a subscriber to the Bible Project on YouTube, become a subscriber. They produce the most amazing and, I think, theologically wonderful pieces of video to explain the Bible. And it's in cartoon, so I pay attention. Take a look. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? that despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. 
And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right, but for Jesus, This is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Pretty cool, huh? So throughout all the chaos and the brokenness of the Old Testament story, there are these little gems that the fulfillment of these promises is is coming. It's not coming through a grand Israeli empire. It's not coming through any human empire. It's not coming through any army, no political movements, no weaponry, no territory, no political structures that get the privilege to the top. It's coming by a quest for the bottom where God himself would would be the bottom among us, a servant among us, a peasant among us, a crucified criminal among us, to show us that true love, selfless love, sacrificial love is the kingdom that we're being invited into. And a kingdom of love, which is not of this world, is a kingdom that will last forever, where Jesus is the risen king. And we are his followers, not just enjoying a kingdom of love, but building a kingdom of love by how we treat other people. That's what the promise is all about, a promise fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Next week, we're having a baptism here, and it's a way to express your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you want to live into this new kingdom, if you want to express your faith through baptism waters, it's this beautiful symbol that we're cleansed by the forgiving grace of God, that we're free from religion, striving to discover who God is and how to appease him so we can make our lives better, to be done with that. 
and to say, I want to live in the kingdom of heaven, dying to myself, being cleansed by God and rising again into a kingdom of love that I get to enjoy now and forever. I'm going to pray a prayer of faith. If you wouldn't mind standing, uh, we'll close in prayer together. And perhaps for some of you, this will be a first time where you would understand the love and grace of God through Jesus Christ and receive that even now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you through every song, through every prayer, through every message. We thank you for the unconditional grace that you pour out upon us through Jesus Christ. You do all the work. You've seen this world collapse in front of you. You've seen us turn your good creation into something quite devastating. Over the course of human history, we have created so much violence and and bloodshed and corruption, and yet you never have left us. Your promise is true. And you also promised that at, at one point, there will be someone to come, a king who would come to bring a whole new kingdom that would last forever. As was said on the video, an upside down kingdom where serving is the greatest good. Serving is the greatest virtue dying to ourselves and living for the benefit of others. And we see Jesus lead not only by example, but lead in a way that causes the forgiveness of sin upon the world. We receive that forgiveness, we receive his grace, and we now wanna walk in that Genesis 2 imagery where we are enjoying you and your love for us and you are enjoying us. We believe that gift comes through Jesus alone. We receive the forgiveness of our sin And we receive this beautiful new kingdom that we want to live in and walk in every day of our lives, a kingdom of love and grace where Jesus is our king, he is our example, he leads the way and we follow him. In his name we pray and everybody said, amen.